They say I'm showing out, they say I should be ashamed hey. I don't do it for the clout, bitch, I do it for the game hey. You can walk in any trap, and I bet they know my name yeah. Frank Matthews of the South, put me in the Hall of Fame What's up, everybody? Jake here. It's been a fat minute. It's been about a month and a half, six weeks, seven weeks. But uh, that kind of is what happens when you actually have to work and you can't just do podcasts all day and uh, you don't just post on social media. Uh, but I'm back with Robert Irving. Glad to have you back. And uh, a lot has happened since the last time we, we spoke, which was actually August 3rd. Uh, so it's a, almost three three full months, almost a full quarter. So we there's uh, lots of a lot to um, pack up, a lot to go over, and and uh, looking forward to the future. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, you know, I think one of the biggest things is obviously just seeing how the Fed is is attacking this inflation crisis, if you will. Um, I think that's probably one of the hotter topics. Um, you know, it's obviously a more of a supply side issue, but there's only so many things they can do. Um, and so one of the things I was reading about that I thought was pretty interesting was you know, how the, the policies are going to change, you know, around fiscal policy because the fed, you know, is obviously supposed to be independent, right. From, um, you know, the government, if you will, from Biden and the and Congress and, you know, the Fed can control the interest rates, the money supply, the balance sheets, but then you have fiscal policy that's also supposed to encourage building and, you know, that kind of what our taxation policies are about, you know, around building multifamily and these lower cost developments, um, trying to get more affordable housing going. And so I'm wondering, I think those, those take longer, uh, right, to get that stuff drawn up as well as passed. But, you know, I'm curious what you think in, in terms of if any of that's going to come down the pipeline and then also how they could change it to shape, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily draw into inflation. It could, depending on, how, on the policies you made. Um, but how are they going to change home ownership? And, and what do you think they're going to do with first-time home buyers and 40-year mortgages? And, you know, what, what kind of creative financial structures can they make there? Well, I think I saw you on Twitter. I recently got back on Twitter because of Elon Musk. But right. I recently, I was going through your tweets and I saw something about, you were interested in seeing, and this will play into it, but you were interested in seeing how they would combat the loss of capital gains, uh, I guess, inflows, because there's obviously not going to be much of any capital gains, you know, three quarters of this year to the majority of next year. Um, and maybe it's not that huge of a deal, but, you know, when you go look at it as, you know, real estate transactions or, or car sales transactions, or any of these transactions which are just coming completely to a halt, right? All of it is coming to a halt. Now there's no there's no sales tax to that. There's no income tax on the more income you make. Now there's, you know, blah, 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 blah. People are spending less on groceries, spending less on gas, uh, you know, one right after the other. And, you know, with interest rates going up, the majority of the, um, the majority of the budget on the for congress the majority of that is being spent on purely interest debt right now servicing the interest and so how you know how do you see that playing out especially with inflation going higher or it's staying higher i guess i should say um 
I think it's just a bigger problem than let's say the first time home buyer, right? I, I you know, I could talk yeah, about the yeah. first time home buyer, but I think it's just a much bigger problem than that. Um, you know, as as a a rising tide raises all boats, a mm-hmm. a tide going out will will lower all the boats as well. So, well, it's interesting, you know, with with the kind of losses that you're seeing, you know, and, and again, it goes back to the way the tax structure is written around if you look at real estate right and forced depreciation and you know that's obviously uh going away 100 percent bonus depreciation is going to go down to 80 next year um but those things lower people's tax burdens right it, it lowers their overall income uh, but when you look at the bigger picture of how does the government get the revenues right obviously from a tax standpoint but whenever you have tax loss harvesting and you have the ability, you know, in, in these massive hedge funds or these portfolios to say, look, you know, we used to own, you know, $100 million of Facebook stock that's turned into 60. So now we're going to, we're going to realize that loss. We're going to sell it all. And then we're just going to buy it back. Like if you look at the volume of trading just in Facebook alone, there's a ton of people doing that right now as you get closer to the end of the year where they're saying, we're going to sell it all and buy it all back. We're going to take that $40 million loss and offset any these gains that we did have from the first part of this year. Um, you know, in, in, in a year like this, it can be a, a pretty large crisis when you say, you know, everybody is taking these tax loss harvesting. All of the private equity deals have slowed down. There's a ton of capital that's been slowed because at the end of the day, the velocity of money is what creates taxation, right? The faster we can get you to spend it or buy it or sell it or move it, every one of these transactions has a cause and effect of taxation, no matter what you're doing with money, right? Unless you're, you know, illegally embezzling it. Um, And so that creates their revenues and that is slowing down, which, you know, intentionally, right, is what they're trying to do at the same time raising rates, which raises their interest payments which is kind of the conundrum they've got themselves caught in. It's like, well, where, you know, like you said, the, the entire budget is just going to pay the deficit because we're not getting any inflows of taxation. And so, um, well, then that begs the question, well, do you raise the rates, right? Do we, well, that's not going to do us, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's it's kind of a catch-22. Um, so yeah, it, I agree with you there. I think that the, the other side of it that I see is is from a, a fiscal policy standpoint, it's like how can they change these policies um, or what can they implement to to just completely change the game? And, and we know that the policies influence our actions, right? So whenever they write new tax laws and new codes and new structures, that influences what they want us to do, you know, i.e. Right. do affordable housing and stuff like that. Um, but I haven't seen anything hit the docket. Have you? No. I mean, the only thing I've, I've seen really and – that has it's really it's just rumor, but I haven't seen anything hit yet. Is is forty year mortgages, um, and then and then m- even more help for first time home buyers. Um, you know, you I'm sure you saw the, and you know this this could be construed one way or the other, right? Uh, Bank of America came out with a loan product specific specifically for minority communities that was a zero percent down. No credit check loan. Now I've seen two. I've seen two. Uh, two coin. Two sides of this coin. I've seen people who are completely for it. Right? They want to revitalize the the minority communities. They want it to become better. And uh, you know, it's just it it just it's giving people ownership and and getting them into assets. The other side of it is you're giving these loans to 
people who are aren't as educated overall on average in those quote unquote minority communities um, who are going to take those loans who wouldn't. And then at that point, if you have no credit checks and zero down, you have super high leverage. It, it seems to me more like just a Wall Street um, money grab where instead of just a, oh, we're helping the people, right? Like somebody's going to sell that 100% leverage, mor leverage mortgage, put a fat yield on it and buy it. And then if it goes bust, oh, well, I made my 8%, you know? So stuff like that is, is I think, what you, got, what you got to look out for and just be, you know, educated against, I say against, educated for, um, because, you know, it's, it's, it's meant to help, but it could definitely hurt just like the subprime mortgage crisis. Um, you know, obviously they was, they probably just wanted to help the, the home ownership, but it, you know, too much concentration in one area can, can blow the whole thing up. So, um, I don't know, but I haven't seen much. Um, I have seen a lot of lending creativity recently, um, the two, one buy downs, rate buy downs, especially in, in new construction. New construction is getting absolutely hammered right now. Um, you know, I'm, we've we've talked about that house that they were selling them for three hundred thousand dollars in January, and they have it listed right now for two sixty nine. And they said they would take offers. So I mean, that's a that's a ten percent cut in like eight months. So I mean, it's just yeah. it's really really fast. And you know, I'm I'm foreseeing more cuts over there too. But it's not just the cuts; they're offering. Realtors five thousand more plus three percent plus they are using uh, our loans to buy down uh, concessions. So they're giving us fifteen thousand dollars in concessions, and so they're just getting very very desperate. And so it might be a good time, and this is why I was asking you that. But it might be a good time to capture some future equity in the new construction market if you can buy it at a good location at a fairly good price, even even if it's a high rate, right? Because if they were selling for Three hundred thousand six months ago. What happens when rates back are back at four, and you know the economy is healthy again? You know, so um, it's just going to be a lot of that. A lot of that is creative financing, you know, and it's financial engineering. But I'm wondering, from a policy standpoint, how? And I think right now they haven't done anything because they're trying to get the real estate market to cool off. And so, if if whatever they do will ultimately yeah, they have. And, and whatever they do will ultimately, you know, increase um, the the buying and selling of real estate, right, which is what they don't want. But for the, a future perspective, like how do you take and make a policy where you make a developer, he buys a track of land, he's going to develop houses, and you give him some sort of tax break or incentive to say, hey, you know, selling the majority of these two or selling, you know, on this specific house, if a um, primary resident buys it, right? Whether it's FHA or commercial or whatever loan product they end up using, then the, the developer gets some sort of tax incentive as well. Um, as well as like a, a, you could say it's a down payment assistance program or something like that, which they have those for first time home buyers, but it's not just first time home buyers, it's primary homeowners, you know, this is their primary residence. That's the the people that I think are struggling the most to get into their, their newest house, whether it's new or used or whatever it is. What kind of policy do you think that they can come up with other than the 40-year mortgage um, to get more people with home ownership? Because I think that's, that's the biggest part of 
the American dream, if you will, or how people have made money over the last 40, 50, 100 years in this country is through home ownership. And it's it's going away at a very, very rapid pace. Well, you and this may not be smart, but you can go look at Canada, I believe. And this is one of the reasons Canada has boomed is because they use interest only interest only mortgages, I believe. Mm -hmm. Let me look this up and make sure this is right. Uh, yeah, so they give you interest only mortgages in Canada. And basically, like if you're only paying, if you're paying half, I mean, that, that cuts your whole mortgage in half almost. And so the, that would appreciate the real estate market by 20% overnight. Correct. But if they had a government like, backed interest only 10 year loan or, you know, and then it switched over to amortize or whatever it is. Right. But I mean, if you're, if you're in between a, a rock and a hard place with interest rates or interest eating your debt, or eating your your payments and everything stops and you have to find a balance. I mean, is that, that for primary be, residents only or is that for investors or anybody? Um it says the stress uh you have to pass a mortgage stress test and the stress test is standard for every home buyer in Canada no matter your choice of mortgage product. So it sounds like just primary I'm uh, not sure about, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, they already do interest only loans for commercial and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not Fannie Freddie, but right. when Fannie, when Fannie Freddie comes out with an interest only loan, um, you know, mainly because it, it sort of makes sense because if real estate was to appreciate, right, at a 5% click every year and all you have to do is sit on it for, for five years and you've made a hundred thousand dollars, why wouldn't you do it? You know, but um, then again, you go back to your the feeding frenzy. Then rates could be, I mean, at that point, rates could be at eight and you could afford it. So, okay. I mean, I don't know, you know. Well, a lot of Although, it goes back to like title, you know, it goes back to why are we not building enough? And it's, it's because they've made it so complicated. There's so much red tape. I mean, even even here in Texas, there's Uber a ton of red ourselves. tape. Yeah, we, we've outregulated ourselves. And, and so therefore... The supply is is at a incremental basis in comparison to demand, and then you know prices just keep going up. Well, it was what, interesting. Go ahead. Uh, what I don't understand, and you know, it's two sides of the same coin, but they, you know, they are looking at prices that are you know forty percent above two years ago, three years ago. Now, let's say prices. Let's let's just assume that prices have come down ten percent. The majority of places, that's not true, but let's say it's come down 10% in the last six months. Well, rates have tripled. Rates have gone from two and a half to seven, okay? So now you come down 10%, your rate's seven, you're still paying more monthly than you would be six months ago at a house that was 10% more expensive. And so, you know, I, I understand that they need the housing market to cool off, but it doesn't really give any relief. And I guess their, their, their whole point is just stop everything, right? But it doesn't really give any relief to anybody but the investors who want to buy real cheap real estate and make more money in the long run. So I don't see how that helps, um, you know, besides just stopping everything, Um because Definitely going to slow point, down the jobs. I mean, that's that's the side of it, right? It's a it's all trickle down. It's like you if you slow down the construction, you slow down the new jobs, you slow down the buying, you slow down the spending, and then you know Amazon's quarterly earnings fall off the table, and you know it's all they it's all linked in together, right? Because if we have less money in our pockets, that's less money we can spend. Um, 
you know, it's, it's all, it's an economy, right? It's a, an ecosystem of cause and effect. And so it's definitely working. I just think that they've never raised rates this fast in this short of a time period. And I hope that they don't money out of the market. Right. Quantitative tightening. Yeah. and, And so I hope that they don't, they don't shock it so bad that they end up having to lower them at the same rate of speed because, you know, that's going to be cause its own uh, problems. Cause if you look back at like whenever they do lower rates quickly, you actually see everyone stop buying because no one wants to lock in that rate. Right. Cause then you'd have to continue to refinance it. And so really stability is what helps, right. It's kind of like whenever they started raising rates at the beginning, everybody saw a ginormous spike in, in purchasing because everybody was, you know, fear of, of how high is this thing going to go? It's the same way on the way back down. Everybody holds off and waits how low they they want to catch the bottom right they want to catch the bottom right and so stability is really what brings people's you know ease and they they can kind of go through it um and and live a normal life but yeah i was telling you you know this past week i was in nashville um looking at uh meeting with a developer up there who's done a a ton of of developing and uh it was interesting to to see his strategy or kind of what he had done you know he's built in the outskirts of nashville um, and he's really ridden the wave of, of the economic boom there. And what it really reminded me of was, uh, like you said, the the rising tide raises all boats. That's exactly what he did. I mean, he's amassed $140, $150 million of personal net worth. Um, and the way that he did it was strictly on the outskirts of, of Nashville and these smaller towns. You know, he, he had basically been around this, these couple of these communities that had went from you know, 1,200, 2,500, you know, 5,000 people. Now they're at 70,000 people. That's all I did. And he had been buying land in that area and developing these, um, you know, houses that were anywhere between 1,800 to 4,000 square feet. And then every once in a while, you know, he's got some of the bigger, higher neighborhoods where they're million dollar plus houses. Um, But that's all he did. You know, nothing crazy. He built triplexes, quadplexes, a couple of apartment complexes. And I mean, I think he's built over 5,000 houses. And it's all been in these communities that are just spurring off the growth of, of Nashville over the last 20 to 30 years he's been doing this. And uh, it was it was very eye-opening. It was impressive to see, but it was eye-opening that this wasn't rocket science. You know, and, and you can look at communities in Texas that are doing this, you know, over near Austin, north of Dallas area where you're taking these smaller towns in these certain areas and the demand of housing and, and job growth and all of this stuff is just booming. And there's people that are just riding the waves, you know, and they're just continuing to develop. And once you, once you know how to do it and you have the sauce, then you just rinse and repeat. Yeah. So it seems like he's getting, he's staying ahead of the overbuilt areas, right? Yeah. So he's, he's, he's sort of, developing maybe where the infrastructure isn't there yet, but it's coming. Um, and you know that there's a, a strong, uh, you know, supply shortage, if you will, and there's a strong demand. Right. And, and I found it interesting, you know, he was talking about they were just now starting to do some commercial stuff, and I asked why. And he's like, well, what do you mean why? And I said, well, you know, they, like, it's kind of like if you're going to buy a business or sell a business or, you know, whatever, it's like, if you're going to, if you're going to venture off into a different asset class and try something new, is that because you believe that building the houses 
you know, that allocating your capital there isn't going to provide you a return, or you think this commercial opportunity is going to provide you more of a return. And he was like, no, I just think that it, it's kind of the natural progression. It's like, well, I don't think so. I think that if you, if you're going to analyze this commercial deal, it's like the only reason you should do that is if you know that it's going to provide you with a higher rate of return than what all of your residential stuff. Is. If, if not, why are you doing it? You know, right. what's the part, sell the land to someone else that, you know, and let them go, you know, waste their time with it. Um, and so I, I just kind of, a, it goes back to focus and kind of honing in on it. It's like, you know, I'm all for diversifying what you're doing, but it's like, if it's not, if you have a, a secret sauce that's providing you a great rate of return, um, optimizing that is kind of the, the golden key. But uh, yeah, it was, it was very interesting that um, it was just, I, I was waiting for the magic sauce or the perfect pill or something, some aha moment, but it never came. It was just, look, we, this town went from, I think the one we went to had 5,000 people in it 20 years ago. And, and now it's, it's nearing a hundred thousand. And he's just been building it the entire time, um, you know, over those years. I think he said that it was it was funny to hear he, he had been um, calculating his net worth every year for the last you know 30 plus years. And his average IRR was was about 24 percent. And so mm. if you just extrapolate the math based on what he's worth now, he's, you know, in 10 years, I think it's a billion. And uh, but I told him that, you know, it's. The, the law of big numbers, they're a lot harder to do that with. It's a lot easier to turn a hundred grand into 150 than it is to take a hundred million and turn into 150 million. Right. Um, there's some bigger risks to be taken. There's a lot of work to be done. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, uh, woe is me, you know, it's a first world problems to have, but it's the same thing in BlackRock and those guys have a, you know, how do you take $10 billion and turn it into 12? That's not easy. You know, that's a lot of return and that's a lot of work. And so, um, but that's that's part of his upside is he's gotten connected now with people that want to come in and, and buy his track of neighborhoods or buy his apartment complexes or uh, a lot of times he's just selling raw dirt. You know, he's been around those communities so long that people know that if they want to sell a piece of land, they can call him. He'll pay cash for it. But he knows the land's worth. Right. So it's kind of it's kind of a wholesale type situation. But, you know, he, he bought one for six million and sold it for 40 you know, over a three-year period, the guy needed the money, you know, and so um, he, he also told me a very interesting thing, and I think this is very true, that uh, people chop at the bit for off-market deals. You know, you throw the word off-market in there, and then all of a sudden everybody gets all excited. Um, you know, he says he never lists any of his property, you know, that way there's always that that excitement and kind of that, you know, oh, uh, I'm the only one that's getting it's a look the scarcity. at scarcity, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he's like, and he gets more money that way, and uh, just because people think that it's off market and they're getting a, a secret deal, and so I thought that was an interesting concept. Yeah, that, I mean, it's that's really that's being around for twenty years and and knowing everybody and just you know you bl you blast it out there and said, hey, who wants it? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Uh, but I mean, that's kind of like what you know what's happening in in Houston as Houston gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you know, they're developing in Sealy, they're developing in Brenham, they're developing in Magnolia, Conroe, the Woodlands, which is all, you know, an hour outside of Houston. But, you know, eventually it's going to be, it's gonna, not going to be just as big, but it's going to be much bigger than it is now. Um, <clears throat> you know, and that's, that's why I think here where we are in that triangle or whatever you have it, you know, it's, it's going to, 
eventually get there to where like like Austin, Round Rock is blown up, Bastrop is about to blow up. Um, all those areas which are just coming off of Austin, um, same thing. So I mean, you think you just got to pick your niche and roll. It's changing, you know. It, a lot of people don't want to agree with the work from home concept, but uh, even if you know, let's say that twenty or thirty percent of people start doing a hybrid, right? That's kind of the most popular is a hybrid work from home model. They're spending a lot more times in their homes, and and so they need bigger houses. They need dedicated workspace areas. A lot of people like to have an office type environment, and that also changes the proximity of where they can live, right? And so now they can get out a little bit further. They want a little bit bigger of a house, but those things don't exist, right? That's not how the houses have been built for the last 50 years. And so now that <laughs> provides a, a new opportunity for developers and in, in this you know, new age, if you will, because um, custom houses are, are extremely expensive. But it, it's interesting to see the buyers uh, kind of like for his houses, you know, his average house now and his developments are 3,000 square feet plus, okay. which is yeah, it's considered, I mean, that's a monster, you know, in my opinion, that's right. a big house. Right. Um, but to him and, and to the, the clients and, you know, the ones that we went and walked, um, it was just normal. And, and every single one of them had uh, one, if not two offices um, in the house, you know. Um, and so I think that's that's something, a trend you're going to see a lot of is, is that people can live way further out. Like you said, Brenham, they can work in Houston. It's like, well, if I only have to drive to Houston once or twice a week, then you know i mean i could do i do that from college station right you know right that's that's it's not a big deal anymore but if i'm doing it five days a week that's a huge deal i don't want to drive an hour and a half every day for five days but one or two days a week yeah i can make that work well so i think on the development side and i'm interested to see maybe if you ask this question i'm sure if he's developing in those in those more rural markets his permitting and his red tape is going to be much much less than let's right. say you go into the municipality of nashville or you know college station or Bryan or the city of Brenham versus washington county like there's just a massive difference between the red tape and everything you have to do there um right. And so he gets to operate more efficiently than somebody, let's say, that is operating in downtown Houston that, you know, has to wait six months for a permit and and has to, you know, adhere to this special code and know these things, just like San Antonio. Like, we did this, we figured that out real quick, right? There's special, th special ways you have to do it. And if you don't know, you're screwed, almost. So... You know, yeah. I, I feel like that might be a, a really good way to look at it. And, and you know, I'm sure he said well, yes, but. Yeah, and it's lower taxes, you know, and, and that's the thing is these cities are losing out on, on taxes when people start building outside of their communities. You know, not only from sales tax where these people are buying goods and everything, but obviously their property taxes. Um, and Texas is really high in property tax. And so, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that as you get out into these more rural communities, you just have kind of a lot less red tape. You're not having to rezone. You're not having to title it. You're not having to, you know, do the curbs the way they want them and the streets and the roundabouts and the turnarounds and the fire lanes. And you know, there's so much that goes into it whenever you're out in the county that you can just get away with a little bit easier. Uh, right. And so, you know, but then, then that kind of goes back to what about the workers that have to work inside these, you know, um, inside Houston, right? The guys that are doing the construction or working at Walmart or whatever it may be where do they live, 
right? How do they, you know, if, if everything's starting to get bigger and more expensive, where, where do they go? Do they just rent? And that, that kind of goes back to the affordable housing or the workforce housing problem where I think the only way to solve it in my mind is that you're going to have to come in with some sort of legislation um, program, like we were talking about, whether it's interest only or incentivizing developers uh, through tax cuts or whatever it may be to get more workforce housing. And it can't be to rent. It has to be to own. That has to be the, the plan or the product. Um, but I, you know, I don't know if people are educated enough on the subject to know that owning a home is, is you know, it's more than just a, a home ownership. It's an investment, right? Um, and, and people have that, their disagreement, maybe Dave Ramsey will argue about that, you know, buying a house isn't a good investment, but it's a, a great investment when you're an unsophisticated investor and you're not, you know, you're just working your job, investing your 401k, home ownership can be huge. Um, well, I mean, it's, you know, the majority, and this is just like from, from Brennan perspective, now it's completely different, but the majority of the quote unquote millionaires, and all I mean by millionaire is they have a million dollars of, of uh, net, uh, net worth, right? Maybe they don't have a million dollars cash. You know, maybe they have a couple thousand dollars, like maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash, you know, but they, 30 years ago, they got married, they bought a house. Um, and even if they did, if they didn't buy multiple houses, they bought one house 30 years ago, you know, worked good jobs, put in the 401ks. Well, now they probably have 750000 to a million dollars in their 401k. Their house is probably worth seven fifty, give or take, and I mean they're millionaires, quote unquote, and they didn't even do anything special. And so, like the majority of people, they don't have to do anything at all to um, become millionaires, you know, realistically. And so, um, <clears throat> I think you're one hundred percent right. I think you know, if if America becomes a renter nation, I think you're just going to see the the widening of the wealth gap um, even worse because, you know, like, like my, let's say my, my grandpa, for example, he bought a house cash in 2000 for like two thirty I don't know. It was like a big house on five acres, cash money, brand new today. It's probably worth 1.2. He didn't have to do anything and he made a million dollars. Right. So like, and you do that, once or twice over your, your course of your lifetime, you're good. So, yeah, I, I mean, I 100% agree with you. And I, if you if you got all those workers to come in and buy houses, and then two three years later, when the product's over, they sell it for 10 20% more. Um, you know, you're just generating a bunch of wealth, a bunch of taxes, and it it, it just makes sense to me, right? Um, I think somewhere I saw that Nashville has like 10,000 multifamily units under construction right now and uh it was pretty wild to see um you know i'm used to construction and all that but in in nashville i bet there was 25 plus cranes in the air i mean really? the whole skyline oh it was insane and i had never seen anything like it i mean everywhere you turned there was a crane building a skyscraper and they were all apartments and multifamily just mm -hmm. tons of it and you know those people are, are renting and they're living in that that you know, which is not a problem to live that lifestyle in terms of living in downtown, but you're right. It's that asset that they're not building um, is crucial. And I don't know how it can be solved or, or if they want to solve it, uh, if they identify it as a problem. I think that kind of transitioning into the rate thing, I think 
you know, prices are going to continue to soften as we get further and further into this. By the, by the time you get to January, you know, we've realized this 7% rate will have been around for 90 to 120 days. And so I think you're going to start to see prices really come down and, and people are already open to, to whatever offer you can come up with, right? Well, the, the question is going to be is if you're going to go out on a limb and you're going to finance something, uh, let's say that it can or cannot cash flow. Uh, when is the rate going to come back down where you can refinance it? Because we, we said this earlier, um, you know, you're dating the rate, but you're married to the property, right? So if you find a good property, the prices have softened enough where you can make it make sense. Let's say it breaks even on the cash flow. And then if you think that the rates are going to come back down as sharp as they went up, um, which I, I do think that that's plausible because I think that you're going to see come May, my, my opinion is that we're going to see a big downturn uh, in construction, but it's kind of like we were talking earlier, is that a lot of businesses that are flush with cash wait for those prime opportunities to release work so that they can get a discounted labor rate on it, they can get discounted materials, because if everybody else is slowing down and Walmart says, hey, I need to build all this stuff and y'all ain't got nothing else to do, uh, you'll do it a lot cheaper, right? And that's just kind of their concept. And when enough of these bigger guys do that, your HEBs, your Walmarts, your Amazons, well, that kind of softens that blow of a you know huge cliff, if you will. Um, the problem is, is that typically, whenever you see stuff like that, smaller businesses don't get an opportunity to partake with Walmart. Um, you know, Walmart is is so big that you have to have certain insurance policies and all that stuff to go even work for them. And so your smaller mom and pops get hit the hardest because they don't actually work with the bigger businesses. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So your, your point about, about, let's say mortgage rates going up and down mm-hmm. very quickly. I mean, you can see over the last 30 years when mortgage rates have spiked relatively quickly, like you said, they've also come down relatively quickly. Now, we're in a little bit different situation here. Um, what do you think happens when construction comes comes to a screeching halt, and uh, and they're putting a, a, between a rock and a hard place, right? Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, this is the largest increase in thirty years. This is a thirty year chart, and uh, and fastest as well. But as you can see, let's say in nineteen ninety five or two thousand, you know, it went from mid sixes to almost nine in a couple of months, you know, uh, six right. months. So, you know, and it came right back down at the same time. So what, what do you think happens, um, you know, to when you see the other side of this chart? I think the biggest thing is, is that, you know, when, when we look at like recessions, right, obviously GDP went up this past, uh, past quarter. And we talked about that thing being an antiquated measurement tool, but, um, you know, I, I think the biggest thing is, is they're looking at inflation, right? So they're they're looking at the jobs report saying, hey, we need to soften the job market. Uh, we have a, a big supply issue with all these commodities kind of all across the board. And, and that's mainly caused by geopolitical stuff, right? But we can taper demand if we keep raising these rates, right? And by tapering demand, we are going to hopefully lower inflation. So I think that's the answer. And, and if, you know, in my opinion, I think that what you're going to see it's kind of a perfect storm. I think come May, you're going to have year over year over year of high inflation print. So in 2020 uh, or 2021, you had like 5% in May. And then in yeah, this, this year, year of you May, nine. You, exactly, you had nine. And so next year, in order to, like, have... if you just 
four, it, five? It, exactly. Just because of the way that the math works. But if you plot that out on an actual Excel graph or something and look at, say, hey, let's just pretend like we did three, 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 and then compare it to what you have. It's like you're going to that's really like 25 percent by the mm -hmm. comparison to 2020's data. Right. right. And, and so that's a massive increase. And you're just not going to continue to do that year over year. Right. It's eventually going to play out. And so if, if they can claim that they beat inflation based on the way the math works, the job market will soften. I, I do think they're going to bring them back down by the end of next year. You know, I don't think we'll ever. Well, I can't say we will ever, but I think that sub five is probably what you'll see by the end of next year. If I had to somebody wanted me to guess. The other thing that you could look at this is in October, or let's say 1977, mid-1977, the interest rate was about 8-9%, mortgage rate. By March of 1980, it had doubled to 16%, and then it had almost tripled to 18 in uh, about two years, three years. It took three years for it to triple. At this point, it's been what? It's been since July of 2021. Let's see. It's, it's been about a year and we've tripled. Um, and so, it, you know, maybe this is, this is this, just because we are in a much faster paced world. Supply chains are faster. People react faster. And the new, I mean, I don't know, but like rates were up on an average about 12% for about 10 straight years from 1977 to 1986, 1987. Now, I don't think we'll see that. Right. Now we have, you know, it took them three years to triple. It took us like eight months to triple. And so, you know, maybe you see rates high for a year, a year and a half too. Um, if you give the same math to that, uh, but obviously we have a lot of different factors going on here, but, uh, you know, 7.08% is a lot harder when, when, uh, <clears throat> prices are 300% higher than 1980. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a much bigger math equation whenever you're dealing with bigger dollars. So I don't disagree. I think that it's a, a complicated one. And I think the bigger problem in my mind is, is the supply side and, and I don't think we're going to fix that. You know, um, we've outregulated ourselves out of, you know, building the chip factories here and having Apple make their iPhones here. It, it boggles my mind that, you know, we we won't have ESG here in, in our homeland, you know, say, oh, we can't do this because of carbon. But yet we'll ship it off to China or, you know, wherever to and, and they'll just dump, you know, magnesium or whatever they want in the water and they'll they'll burn all the rubber tires and, you know, all this stuff. And so uh, it's kind of like the, I saw uh, an article about recycling and how, uh, you know, if you look at recycling year over year, we're down like 80% or something like that. Like our recycling rates have went to, went terrible. Right. Why? So why is that? So, well, the answer is, is because, you know, we used to send all this plastic to China and we considered a hundred percent of our exports as recycled, but then China would get it and say like, Hey, 80% of what you're sending us is trash, like literal, you know, we can't, we can't recycle it because it's so convoluted and all these different types of plastics and yada, yada, it went all into depth. But essentially the way that we measured our recycling was we said, Hey, everything we export is a hundred percent. 
And now we just don't export as much anymore, right? And so we can't do that. But the truth was, is that that was just like a, a skewed data perspective, right? It wasn't true. It wasn't real. Um, and so there, there's a lot of these things where if we're going to get truly to renewable energy and we're going to get to recycling and, and a self-sustaining ecosystem, we're, we're going to have to make some serious changes. I just think that we're making them way too quick. And, and it's kind of like with the oil. You think you can turn that light switch off. It's going to take us decades to get that light switch to flip. You know, um, and, well, and they're calling for it to get even stronger now. Right. Like, we're going to see we're, we're going to see five dollar gas next year. No think doubt. So? Yeah. Yeah. I was reading about there's a couple of these bigger funds, um, you know, take BlackRock, for instance. There's quite a few of them out there that have completely stopped investing in oil and gas exploration. And these guys, they're just not drilling anymore. You know, they're just not going out and exploring. And so their well, they, ability to They do, also got outregulated. Right, right. There was, no incentive, there was no incentive to drill. The only reason gas prices are where they are is because our strategic petroleum reserve is damn near zero. Like yeah. they, they keep, it's funny how they keep saying, like, oh, it's the lowest it's been since 1983. Guys, it was on the way up in 1980. They were filling it. So every time we get lower and lower, it, we're just going, you know, it started at zero on one day, right? And, and then it went all the way up. And so we're just catching it every every day as a, as a new record low. Um, but, in, in, you know, it's funny to me that nowadays, you know, with, with the way that information cycles through, you know, we have the ability to understand that they're just draining it so they can keep the gas prices low in an effort to look good at the polls in November. Like it's just right. – it, Right. It's so blatantly obvious. Right. And so it, after November, once that's done, Saudi Arabia has already said they're not going to keep putting more supply on the market. They're going to watch us get absolutely clobbered. And then as the oil price goes up, well, how are you going to refill your strategic reserve? Are you going to refill it with ninety five dollar oil? Right. I mean, come on, that that's going to it's going to cripple you. How much money is that going to cost you? Um, and so it, it's been a been an interesting where you pulling up a chart. Yeah, I'm gonna show it or, or share it. Um, I don't know if you saw my last one, but can you see that? Yeah, I can see. Yeah. So not this one. Are you seeing the petroleum reserve? Yeah, it's purple. Okay. Yeah. So you look in in July of 20, you're at 656 million barrels, and uh, let's look at the interactive chart now. So you go to max. And it only goes to 2018. But in July of 20, you're in 656 million barrels. And how many barrels are they releasing every day? I don't remember. I want to say it's like five or eight a week, five or eight million a week. That's what I thought. Yeah, so. it's looking like it's it's like six to eight a week is looks because it's just showing me every day. Yeah. Um so I mean. It's, it's not that bad, but it's, you know, look, I mean, look at that huge decline, like the huge decline in, it's almost 50% decline in the last two years. So they can't do it forever. Yeah, um, yeah. And if you're not drilling anymore, well, then it's going to be gone, gone. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's like $600 million a week that they're, you know, releasing, which, you know, it's all relative, right? But I, I just think that at the end of the day, it's a, it poses a huge national security risk to us to sit here and, and drain this thing down in an effort to look better at, at the polls. Um, and, and so, again, it goes back to they only have so many levers they can pull. I'm very curious to see if they're going to roll out 
a new fiscal policy uh, that tries to change the way the game is played, specifically in my mind around real estate, because that has been where, you know, over the last two years, we've seen such massive appreciation, which, like you said, is, has widened that wealth gap. So what are they going to do from a fiscal standpoint to allow Americans to get back in this game? Because at this point, they're completely out of it. You know, the right. ability to, you know, if you're talking like even up there well, in Nashville. You, you can't afford it because it's too expensive and you can't right. afford it because of the interest rates at 7%. Can't, can't right. even qualify for a mortgage. Their starter homes were like in the 400s. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I mean, I don't know what a, a mortgage would be on a, on a $400,000 house at 7%. What is it, three grand? It's about $3,500. Right. And so, and that's, that's, you know, you got taxes and everything else in there. I mean, that's crazy. You know, people can't, people can't pay that. No. You know, I mean, if you're making, if your combined income is 120 to $150,000, which would be a really good combined income, um, you know, there's no, I don't even know if you're going to get approved for that. Right. You know, 3,500 bucks a month, especially you tack on two vehicles and kids and, and they wonder why you know, younger adults aren't having children is because they just simply can't afford them. Um, and, and actually, I don't, I don't know if I can pull it up, but I, I saw a chart the other day that showed um, just inflation over the last 20 years in certain sectors. Um, and healthcare was the, was the leading uh, in terms of like price appreciation. Healthcare yeah, was the it. number one. Yeah, Not college tuition? Wild. Say it again. It beat college tuition inflation? Yeah, I'm actually, I think I did. I think I saved it or I, I the other thing I've seen the other thing I've seen is I've seen a lot of talk about if the Fed will change their stance on inflation and say okay you know we we know we have high inflation but maybe now four to five percent inflation should be the norm you know maybe that's okay and so when we we, we need to just get back to four to five, and, uh, you know, at that point, you know, hey, who cares? Like, hey, we did our job. We, you know, we did it. Um, but the other side of the corner of that is like now they're changing the rules in the middle of the game and they technically lost. And it looks like they cheated. So, you know, who knows? That would be interesting, though, because, you know, if you have an inflation rate at four to five percent every year compounded, that is massive. Absolutely. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. I, I think the bigger question is going to be is how do we come out of this, this Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan conflict from a global standpoint, that's what's allowed us to maintain inflation at such a low percentage it is because of the global society and just the, the economy of scale and how cheap goods can be produced. You know, you've got Ukraine was the number one wheat exporter in the world or number two in the world. You know, it's like, when you start to take that stuff away and you move back towards a nationalist society, and, and let's just say that we're with our allies in NATO, there's going to be certain things that, that we don't have access to because, you know, we just don't have anybody that grows wheat or, you know, not anywhere near as much. Right. And then if you do want to buy it from X, then you're going to have to pay this special tariff because you have an alliance between OPEC and China and Russia, and they know they have, you know, X commodity that they really like and or that they control the majority of the market on. And so they, they apply this surcharge to it or whatever all of that is. And, and you can apply that, that principle to whatever commodity you want to choose. But ultimately what that leads to is price inflation. Whereas yeah. over the last 30 years, since the 90s, we haven't had that. We've all been working together as a cohesive unit to try and lower the cost of goods 
increase more production and, and all of that. And we've all been playing well in the same sandbox. Um, but I'm, I, I don't really know why you've got China and Russia that all of a sudden have started really trying to push their agendas uh, outside of their own territory and borders, right? Because no one's infringed upon their their current regimes and their territories and their borders inside their home countries. Um, but they're clearly obviously wanting to go outside of that with Taiwan. And I mean, they, they recently, you know, dominated Hong Kong and um, obviously Ukraine. And so that that is one of the bigger drivers of inflation um, that I don't think can be solved. So, so, and that, and that's one of the, you know, in the all in podcast, that's one of, I don't know who is that's super worried about it, but you know, Chamath is like, Hey, we're, we're hitting a bottom. And I don't remember if it's David or Jason, one of them are saying, Hey, like, wait, like this is still going on over here. We're, we're not, we're, this is not over. We're not done. And, uh, and, and, you know, it, there's a lot of, especially with the, the let's say the last two weeks, the market has gone up 10, 15%. And so, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, optimism on the on really just hope that the Fed pivots, you know, or at least pauses their rates because a recession is coming. But then you saw the GDP was up um, and there's all these, you know, lagging indicators or le leading indicators that show that we're not out of the weeds at all. And uh, the tensions between Russia, China, United States, who, you know, Ukraine, what have you, it, it just doesn't seem like a very optimistic outlook right i mean you know it, it it's bad but it doesn't seem like it's like oh my gosh the world's falling you know at that point everybody should be bullish because it's just not that bad but uh you know it, we're bad but you know uh you know it just kind of it's not that bad you know i don't know yeah i think at the end of the day the fed's number one priority is to tame inflation and so they're going to do whatever they have to do to tame it um but again, I just keep going back to, I think that these rates are only going to do so much to demand, even if we do crater it, um, you know, they, they can only raise them so much because like we had talked about earlier, their ability, you know, the taxes aren't coming in, they have to service their debt. So that has to, you know, they have to keep that in mind. Um, but, you know, what are they going to do from a fiscal policy standpoint to increase our ability to compete and increase our ability to produce all of the goods and services that we need? Because that is the underlying driver of inflation right now is the fact that supply constraints are so discombobulated that commodities are, are going up. So do we do we kick out the cartel out of, out of Mexico and we just start absolutely, you know, release a two trillion dollar you know, fund to go down there and build the infrastructure in Mexico and say, hey, you know, we're going to build this North America alliance. And, and we're just going to be able to produce on our own soil, if you will, and and have a a cheap labor force down there and, and we're going to turn a blind eye to all the regulations and we're going to burn all the coal. And, you know, like how are they going to fix the fact that supply is what's driving this inflation? Right. Um, but, you know, cause I don't think that you're going to be able to crater demand enough. You're definitely not going to cause deflation. Uh, and I've heard that argument a few times that people are worried about deflation. Eventually. I, I don't think that's going to be the, I don't think that's coming because I think everything is driven from supply. And right now they're just trying to tame demand, but that is their number one, you know, worry is, is inflation right now. They could care less about the stock market. I don't think they could care less about anything else other than we have to get inflation under control. Right. Right. Well, I think, you know, I, 
and I've asked my buddy Sam this, if you wholeheartedly believe that it's a supply side issue with inflation, why is raising rates the way to do it? Why is raising rates the way to kill or kill the back of inflation? Right. Demand. I guess yeah. to, to kill demand to the point of supply, but that doesn't fix anything. Yeah. Well, I think the answer is, is it's the fastest way, right? It, through fiscal policy, you can engineer other ways, but it's going to take a while, right? right? Because you have to not only draft it, enact it, it has to be voted upon. And then we all have to digest it, understand it, and then put it into action. Let, let's pretend like the Mexico plan is the way to go. I mean, you, you're six years from even, you know what I mean? Like by the time we, you know, end up axing the cartel and get down there, now we got to build it all, right? And then now all of a sudden we're, we're actually going to start producing chips, right? It's kind of like the the Samsung plant going on in Temple. Um, you know what I mean? Everybody, oh, they're, they're building a $14 billion plant. Yeah, but I mean, have you seen, it's a decade. That's the plan. You know, it's going to take that long to build this kind of infrastructure. And that's what they've done in China and these other places around the world over the last 30 years is they've built these massive infrastructures of, of products out there, which has allowed us to keep that inflation rate low, even with the, the massive amount of demand. And I, I think the other side of this, it, it kind of goes back to energy and, and some of the stuff I've been reading uh, about food and kind of the scarcity of it is as we continue to bring third world countries online and get them more and more uh, onto Starlink and things like that, where they're getting to this modern world, their energy consumption is going to, let, let's just say that it meets ours, right? Our population is not growing. Our energy consumption over the last 10 years hasn't really went up that much in terms of America and in the industrialized world. But when you, when you talk about turning Africa online to energy between gas cars, I think it was like one in 20 people in Africa have a vehicle, right? Imagine if one in five did. How much fuel would you consume? How much? You know, let's pretend like they're all electric cars. Exponentially. Where are you going to get all the rare earth minerals? Right. Whenever you talk about supply side is our problem, the ability to produce goods and services as we continue to bring these other countries online that are, you know, quote unquote, developing economies, it, it's just going to put a bigger constraint on those supplies. And that's where, you know, you have the Chinas of the world that are going to Africa and trying to industrialize these people. Uh, but that's because they need more economic engines, right? They've seen that America is pulling away from them. And we're, we're all this, these conflicts and tensions. And so they're trying to find other people they can befriend that can buy their goods and services because they need to produce them in order to keep their economies going. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense, but I mean, how, how far off are we from that? From what? From, let's say you get Africa online and you have, instead of one in 20, you have one in five people. Yeah, it, it'll and come in waves. Right. It, it'll come in waves. I just think that that's going to be one of the, the bigger reasons that you're going to see um, supply continue to be constrained in the future is that there's just a lot of people that want it. And we have to figure out on our own soil what we're going to do about the supply side of products and services. Um, are we going to try and compete? Are we going to allow ourselves to unregulate? Or, or are we going to, is the government, kind of like we did with the chips uh, bill, where we said we're not allowed to sell them to China. We're not allowed to sell them the products that make it. We're not allowed to teach them. We're not allowed to go over there. You know, that is a, a complete government shutdown of China producing or taking on our technology of chips. So if they come out and say, hey, we're going to really heavily incentivize you to do business in Mexico for manufacturing, we're going to give you these tax incentives and all this stuff, right? 
start pushing you that way. That is the fiscal policy answer to solving the supply side issue. But right. that's going to take decades, which is why, to your question, it's like, well, the immediate response right now is raise rates. That's at least going to curb demand enough for where we can tame inflation. But like you said, do we get it below 5%? And, I, you know, I don't know. It's like, because over the next, I think, I think based on the way that it's, it's calculated, yes. Now, if we were to take a three-year rolling average, I think that's probably the best way to do it is this year compared to the last three years average to give you a better understanding of where you're at. But based on year over year math, I do think that we're going to get it back down below 5%. But we have a long-term issue that we need to solve, which is partnering with reliable countries that we can do business with. Um, but we've known this for a decade, two decades. We've known this forever about China. We still haven't done anything about it. Yeah. So imagine if, let's say, you know, you, you base a stock based on its year-over-year -year, uh, return and also its cumulative return. Let's say from, from 2010, Apple's return, let's say 100% or 300%, whatever it is. Um, imagine if, if we did that with inflation. Like, can you imagine? So... From 2000 to 2022, what is the cumulative inflation rate? It's probably like 100 or 150. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you have, you know, 5% and then 9% and then 5% again and then 3% the year after, what is that equal to? 25, 30? So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's only three or four years. So, I mean, that's a huge jump. And that's not just assets. And assets are probably going to follow that. Um, yeah, more than likely. Well, I did the math on it. Crazy. I think I sent you the Excel chart where I plotted uh, real inflation from 2000 till today, and then I, I the other plot was two to three percent each year. So two, three, two, three, two, three, yeah. and I did this from 2000 all the way until today. And what's funny is that when you look at it from a cumulative standpoint, they're actually uh, the exact same where they are today. So if you were to do two to three percent every single year since 2000 versus real inflation, some years it was as high as five, some years it was negative, right? right? And so if you plotted those two together, they actually perfectly intersected to about where it is today. And then I think if you if you print eight percent next year, average eight percent next year, it actually does jump above it. Um, but it, it's funny to me that like no one really talks about that that. Where we are today, and, and I didn't go back 30 years, I was going back to 2000, but that's still 22 years, um, is exactly where the Fed wants us, based on the inflation but, we have. But what about this? Let's say you have nine this last May, right? Mm -hmm. If prices don't, if prices don't, you mean, so this, no, this is the, the flip side of that coin. If prices, let's say house prices, it's going to look like they decreased a crap ton because from 2021 to 2022, they increased 20%. Well, now if you decrease even one to 2% from where you were, it's going to look really bad because, you know, you're, you're coming from your year over year is going to be what 10% more than likely because, you know, you went up 20% last year when you came down five this year. Well, I mean, that's a massive difference. Um, you know what I mean? So like oh, yeah. maybe even maybe we get surprised and let's say next year we're at prices don't even move. But if prices don't move, last year you were, you were at nine. Well, that's a net difference of nine. 
Mm-hmm. That's a huge, huge, massive difference. So, I mean, I, I think really the Fed probably needs inflation to be more at like five, four or five next May, because if they don't, then they're going to be like, oh, we're deflating. Well, yeah, right. but not really. Like it's it's just kind of like that's what that's what my uncle's been telling me the whole time. It's like they need the inflation to increase asset prices, to increase sales taxes, to increase incomes, to increase their their tax revenue, because they keep printing money, they keep having to pay interest. They have to have an inflation to pay for everything. And so you know, I understand well, that the strength the of the Fed, dollar. Right. I mean, you look at what that's done. That's crippled these other economies that are that have dollar denominated debts and they're also buying commodities and dollar denominated, you know, uh, currencies. And so um, that that's absolutely crippling them. Did you see that chart I just sent you? I emailed oh, you email? a chart. Yeah, I emailed it to you. I wanted to read it. Let's see. Real quick. I don't think I can share it on my phone. It's talking about supply driven inflation. And then demand-driven inflation. It's from 2018 oh, yeah. to 2022. Can you share it? Let me see. I can just let me share the screen. So you see that? Yeah. So basically, what it says is that I'll just read you the the line up here, and then and then I'll talk about the chart. But it says the thin line between governance and politicking has gotten increasingly blurred as the U.S. goes into midterms. But supply-driven inflation is a huge problem that the Fed cannot fix alone. It relies on fiscal policy. It also relies on fixing the problems we have. Right now, the Fed is just putting a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. Mary Daly even said this in our interview. The Fed is only responsible for 50% of the inflation we have. Fiscal policy has to step up. And so this chart is showing you the green line, the green bar graph, if you will, is a supply-driven inflation. And if you look right there in 2021, that's where it starts to kick off. And that's been over 50% of the overall cumulative total of inflation. Um, whereas demand, you can see as the blue, has been has been relatively small. And so by raising these rates, they are, you know, quote unquote, crushing the demand, but they're crushing less than 20% of the problem, right? Whereas right. the other 60 to 80, some of these months, you know, things 90% of the problem is supply. Um, but in that, you know, Mary works for the Fed is, is who she is. Um, but that's why she's saying fiscal policy has to step up and, and fix this issue. But it goes back to timelines, timelines and incentives. Yeah, that's interesting because you look at but I mean, so what what's what's the basis of inflation is, you know, Milton Friedman says inflation is purely a uh, monetary phenomenon. So you print money. Inflation goes higher. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you what do you say to that? I mean, like if you say supply, if if supply driven inflation is so high, and inflation is a monetary phenomenon, what does that mean? Like, so what's what monetary phenomenon is driving that supply driven inflation? If that's the case, right? I think that it, it's more of the scarcity of the goods and services and the ability to produce them for what I would call, you know, cheap um, or, or for a reasonable amount in comparison to the past, right? So that, that's what inflation is. It's a comparison to last year, right? Or last month or yesterday. Right. And so moving forward, it's, well, you have a, an increase in the, in the cost of goods, right? From the commodity to the labor, to the fuel that it takes to transport it. 
And so therefore today it costs a lot more to produce X than it did last year. Um, now the, the increase of the monetary supply is going to give you the ability to continue to afford it, right? Which is going to therefore drive the demand because if you don't have the ability to afford it, if you don't have the money to buy it, then the demand is going to slow, which therefore you need less of X, meaning that there's more supply of it on the market, which therefore drives the demand down, which lowers the price. Um, so I, I don't disagree with what he says, you know, with the, the modern mo monetary theory and, and our ability to print money. Um, and, and yes, that does. It's a direct correlation to inflation because without it, you can't have inflation because there's no demand, right? Because if you don't have right. any money, then you can't buy anything. Right. Um so yeah, it is. It's a circular economy. You know, it's like an ecosystem. Um, but I think the problem is, is that people have a, a, a value of life that they're accustomed to. And, and so they expect to be able to live in a certain way on a certain means. Uh, and, and no one wants to sacrifice that quality of life and struggle. Um, and, and that's not what the, you know, that's not what we were sold, right? That's not the bill of goods that were sold here in America or in many of the, uh, you know, emerging economies. And so that's the question is how do you fix both sides of it where we can still live in economic prosperity? We can still have a booming economy, a growing economy and, and prosperity in general. Um, but on the same time, not have crazy inflation where the wealth gap just keeps getting further and further apart. Right. No, it makes sense. I think I the answer, the long-term answer is fiscal policy. The short-term yep. answer is raise the rates. Let's curb demand. Let's get this thing under control so we're not crazy. Let the math work its way out, which I think it will. But the long-term answer is we need creative fiscal policy to de-risk ourselves from these allies that we cannot trust and get our manufacturing uh, in places that we can. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I think it's a good 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 way to look at it because you know you've got the yeah the short-term you've got the short-term. Uh, Band-Aid, then you have the the long-term cure, I suppose you want us to call it. Um, exactly, exactly. But it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Because you see this huge uptick in inflation, um, you know, and then, and then you know, once you see year-over-year, year-over-year inflation next October is going to be a lot less than it is now, purely just because last year we were at mm -hmm. nine. So, I right. mean, ne next year if we're at, if we only went up 2%, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting because that's that's a massive. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I think the bigger thing too is like come May. You know, when you look at core CPI and then just CPI in general, uh, and they're taking fuel out of it, right? Because they say it's too volatile. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. They exclude fuel for a lot of times out of that that number because they they claim it's too volatile. Um, yeah convenient right because the fuel is going to go off the charts I and mean, we'll be lucky if here in texas if we're not paying five dollars a gallon uh in the next six months you know right um because it, it's not only from a, a, a capital expenditure standpoint the guys just don't have the investment coming into them um but they're also every time they go out and drill they're getting beat over the head with new esg credits and new esg criteria and so the cost of drilling has went up by 25 percent and then no one wants to invest in them because they get shunned on the open market uh, and, and their little score goes down. And so what it what it's doing is, is, you know, for guys like me and people that do private investing, it's given us a huge opportunity and access to these funds that we never had access to because they would just go tap on a BlackRock and say, hey, I need 100 million bucks and they get a check. 
or a wire, um, but they can't do that anymore, right? And so, you know, they're, they're needing smaller private investors, um, but it, it's such a, it's kind of like Germany right now, I don't know if you saw that their, their natural gas went negative um, in yeah. terms of, it was the same thing that happened to, to us during COVID when WTI went negative was there's nowhere else to store it. So Germany and, and these, you know, the Europe as a whole has been storing so much natural gas that they're just absolutely overfilled with it. And for the last two or three weeks, they've had, you know, rather warm uh, winter climate. And so they're not burning anywhere near as much natural gas. So then they have all these boats that are sitting there full of it and these pipelines and they have nowhere to put it. And so right. therefore it becomes negative and everybody has to offload it and they just need to burn it for fun now. Um, it doesn't mean that they're out of the, the, the problem is they don't have enough storage, right? So they're not out of the woods and in, in a month or two, they're still going to be in a really big bind and natural gas is still going to spike. But whenever you're, when you're playing with the market and you're, you're trading commodities and you're trying to hedge, those are the little things that it's like, this isn't always surefire. Like you, two months ago, you had people making massive bets that the energy market in Europe was going to go through the roof and it did and it will. But in the short term, it went negative and people lost their pants because of this weird little thing where it's like, oh, we actually don't have anywhere to store it. Therefore, you're stuck holding it. Well, hey, I can't hold it forever. So I'm going to pay you to take it from me, but I have nowhere to put it. But this guy over here bet, you know, trading his commodity he he put you know on calls and puts and stuff and so it's just funny to me to see that that like no matter what the situation is there's never a surefire guaranteed win so don't ever bet the house right because it can still right. now do i think in in two months are they going to have an oversupply of natural gas no they're going to be in the box um, right. and that that's a guarantee but the the way that the prices have fluctuated in that interim time has been pretty pretty good to watch yeah i think it's pretty crazy um it's interesting to see to it's interesting to go through this as as a uh, as a younger guy. I wish I mean I don't really wish I was thirty years old, but I wish I had experienced two thousand eight because hmm. I obviously am not emotionally or financially scarred from that, um, right. whereas a lot of people are. And so, you know, you have, you have a lot of these, you know, fear mongers or, you know, people calling for the, you know, the end of the world. And like, this is just the same thing and it's, it's all, it's all going to break. And, uh, but it's interesting to see that because like, obviously what you go through drive your, drives your perspective. And so, um, you know, I don't well, see any of that. I didn't go through 08 either, right? I was, I was too young. Um, I was still in high school, but you know what I what I do think the biggest difference there is that I think the the age of information and the speed at which we consume it and uh, you know between Twitter and everything else in 2008 people barely had Facebook and so the the ability to get educated on what was happening and why why was the housing market booming and for people to understand I mean if you watch the Big Short right they went around and asked the strippers and that was who was going to tell them you know the way the economy was going and she had five houses right and and yada yada and so you know i think that nowadays people can look at can get on the internet and better educate themselves and understand well you know are we going to see a, a real estate crash well no because the supply is here you know and the, and the demand is here there's there is no new housing we've been building less of them for the last decade and you know this age of information i think it allows us to build a better model and, and better predictability uh, and learn from that and so um, I, I, and I, I like that. I think that that allows for people that are going to do their studying and do their homework, it allows the cream to rise to the top, um, to be well-educated and, and well, 
uh, it's not even well-educated, it's more well-read uh, and on top of kind of how this whole macro environment works together because, you know, one of the biggest things that, that I always say is you can't fight the Fed, right? And, and the macro environment matters more than the micro. So just because Zuckerberg is building the VR headset that may change the world, the macro environment is slaughtering him. And I think he lost like $50 billion of personal net worth in like a week, right? And so regardless, you know, that macro environment view is a good thing to be watching and better understand because it dictates so much more than the macro environment of, well, maybe he is building a great product that will change the world one day. Um, but now maybe a good time to buy or, you know, in, in many people's case, they're offloading Facebook shares faster than they can hit the sell button. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's interesting. That's an interesting way to put it because like, let's say, let's say PLTR or, you, you know, Facebook or Twitter even, or Snapchat or Uber or Airbnb none of them or even peloton right none of them you know they're all great platforms all great products all awesome right like pelotons are sweet pltr is a great software um airbnb is a great platform but the macroeconomic you know economy has just obliterated them um because you know the free the free cash flow rate is is now four four percent higher than it was a year ago and the way that they're valued on the stock market is is based on multiples. And so if their multiple gets gets cut in, in a quarter, you know, well, you know, most of those names are down 80, 90%. So it's just crazy to see because those underlying businesses didn't even change. The majority of them, the majority of them didn't. Some of them did, but, but the majority of those underlying businesses didn't even change. Nothing changed. They probably got better. But it's the outlook and the macro outlook that, that changes everything. And so I think that's where like Buffett, he's like, you know, you can't look at the, the company's stock price. You got to look at, okay, what's their financials, you know, in relative to their stock price. And if it's a great financials and the stock price is pretty cheap, okay, why? And if you think, you know, people are being inconsiderate about it, you know, and you think it's cheap, you should buy it and hold on to it for a long time um, because eventually it's going to roll right back up. And uh, and you'll make some dough, but it'd be interesting to see if, you know, the reset of price to earnings ratios or how, you know, because I mean, that is a ratio, right? It's a form of a percentage, just like, you know, percentages are. And so I think that I don't know if I've explained this to you a while back, but, you know, in business, everybody operates off of like percentage of margin, right? So 50 percent margins or whatever it is. So imagine if you had a thousand dollar uh, sale and, and you wanted the 50% margin, you had $500 of cost. So that's, there's your 50%, right? And so as inflation occurs, now that's that same cost on that same project is $700. Well, in order to get 50% margin, you have to sell it for $1,400. So that, that's the exact same product, the exact same service that now you're selling for $1,400 to get a 50% margin. Well, you made $700 now because you wanted a 50% margin. Whereas before last year, you sold that thousand dollar product at 50% margin at $500 of margin, right? So the, the percentages and the dollars don't translate over inflation. And so, you know, we, could, do we need to reset the way that price earning ratios are looking at or a 20% EBITDA business, right? Well, that 20% EBITDA business is now producing, you know, $400 million more of free cash flow. But it's the same percentage. Does that make sense? Yeah, hundred percent. It needs to be reanalyzed and looked at 
nobody wants to have that conversation because we're so used to using percentages and ratios as a form of communication and a, and a measurement tool. But through inflation, those things get so skewed when what really matters is what is the free cash flow dollars? What is the profit dollars, not the margin percentage? Uh, because as we inflate, you know, those things are going to get out of whack. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. What else? Um, you can eat some dinner. I know. What's the, uh, what do you think, what do you think is to come for the short, short to medium term, let's say a year or less in the stock market and the real estate market and the economy in general? Um, do you think we see some sort of mild recession? Do you, or if we're not already in one, do you think, you know, we stay steadfast where we are. Um, do you think the stock market is hitting a bottom, like Jamal says? Um, and then, you know, yeah. my 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 fund manager buddy is talking about rates. You know, he he thinks rates right now are peaking, um, mainly because you know, as, as you, like you said at the beginning, the Fed's likely to do another say a five point basis uh, hike, and then another fifty after that. And then they're done. So there's not that much more room to go. I mean, three three quarters of a point. So you know, there's not that much to go. Um, and I think, I think they're I think, pressing that in. I think in general, I think we're in for quite a bit of pain for a while in the stock market. Um, and, and my main reason is because, you know, I think we are at a bottoming. I just don't think we're going to go back up for a while, a long ways up. Um, and, and the main reason why is if, you know, if we do taper rates, let's say that we, we go up another 75 or let's just say we hold at eight uh, and then inflation does start to come back down, um, you know, like we think it will. The way that the job market works is it's a lagging indicator. Right. And so, um, you know, by this time next year, let's say May of next year, if we do start to see unemployment soften to that four percent mark, well, a lot of those wages, those people aren't earning money. Well, if they're not earning money, if they're not being put to work, then they're not spending money. If they're not spending money, then a lot of the earnings reports are coming back uh, lower, right? And then with inflation, the cost of goods have went up and then the people have less money to spend. So, you know, the stock market bases everything based off of your quarterly earnings, right? How well are you producing? We'll look at Amazon, right? I think they said somewhere between like zero and a hundred billion was their earnings. It's like, oh, that's a great, you know, thanks. <laughs> Um, and so they got whacked, right? It was like a 20% drop. And so I think that stuff's going to continue. I think the earnings are going to continue to get beat up um, as we get our way through this inflation between the jobs reports and then the slowdown, if you will, of construction um, and people just not looking to build. You look at like Facebook laying people off, Twitter's going to lay a bunch off. Everybody that's getting laid off like that, it's going to be a little while until they burn through their savings, right? And then they're going to have to get themselves a different job, maybe um, a step down, right? They're not getting paid uh, as much or, or whatever that case is. Um, and so I, I do think the stock market, obviously, long term, I'm bullish. I think that it's one of the safest places on the planet that you can put your money. And I think that that's why long term it'll be a, um, a good thing. The S&P is, is where I would recommend. But, you know, real estate, I think, is going to soften over the next year. I think it's going to come back down pretty drastic in the next you know, 90, 120 days. Um, but I, I do think that we're going to, you know, put a little flag in the ground and claim that we beat inflation. Uh, and I think they're going to do that once it gets below four to five, 
Um, I, you know, I don't think they're going to get it all the way back down to two and then claim they beat it. I think four to five and they'll be happy with it. Uh, we've already started measuring it month over month now instead of year over year. So that's been fun. Um, but, you know, I think that rates, like I said, I think they come back down by the end of the next year um, to somewhere below five. And I think that as an overall macro view, you know, I think we have to figure out from a fiscal policy standpoint what we're going to do to not get ourselves in the situation that we're in with the reliance that we have on people that we can't trust. I think that's the simplest way to put it. Um, I just, we haven't ever done a whole, I mean, Trump did a lot with the um, the tariffs and really kind of pushing things around, but that's still, you're still relying on them to produce the goods and services. You're just taxing them in a different way to make it to where you are now as competitive as they are because they're having to pay a 25% surcharge to get it to you. So that, that is a way of doing it, but I, I don't think that that completely incentivizes you to build a production facility here or in Mexico or in Canada or wherever. Um, yeah. We need to be able to cut ties. I mean, we, we learned that during COVID. Look at how many pharmaceutical drugs we were producing in China. And they're lockdowns. You know, that, that's the whole other side of this thing is whenever they do finally come out of lockdown, uh, what's that going to do again to the supply chain issues? We wouldn't have to worry about all of that if we would create fiscal policy uh, to give us a more stabilized economy uh, that, that's predictable, which is ultimately what, what the people want is a predictable economy. Well, it's the same thing as like with Europe and Russia right now. And we, we see effects of that too, but Europe is getting hammered because of the the war in russia like they're so dependent right. on that the gas of russia that they have no choice but to bend over and say okay i mean it is what it is yeah. which is and, why we took it away I mean, we'll never claim that we did that but that's why we sent the little baby spy drone over there that went underwater and blew <laughs> the pipeline and i completely get it is it's like you took the negotiation tactic off the the table because you're right Germany would have taken the negotiation come November, come December, they would have taken that and said, whatever you want. Tariffs, they're all gone. Sanctions, they're all gone. Allowed access back to SWIFT, here it is. Please give us the gas. Right. So you blow it up and it's, you know, no longer there. And so right. Um, right. very interesting, but it's funny. I, you know, I don't know why they don't point the finger harder at us, but I guess maybe they don't want, uh, maybe they don't want to, you go down that rabbit hole. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, what if we claimed? Yeah, okay, we did it. Now what? I don't think so. I think I think you can, I think you can uh, treat that as an act of war, really, because you absolutely, know, it, 100%. it is. You know, so. it is a whack war. You're right. So I mean, I, but you know, who, who controlled the drone? Right. That, that's the question. Like, there's no reason why we would send actual men over there to do that when you could fly the drone over there, land it in the ocean, you know, sink it down to the bottom and blow it up. Um, you know, there's just what what good does it do you to find causation there? Right. Who did it? Yeah. Well, I think we uh, basically just said there's a lot of questions. We have no idea what's happening, and we'll see. <laughs> it is chaos, uh, but it's it's been entertaining. It has but that's been entertaining. You know, it, it, and and I I want to ask you this too. So, a lot of the successful businesses that I have, you know seen learn from you know I, I could quote Andy Frisella or Ed Milet or any any of those guys who are kind of more um in the in the influencer space but you know they have huge businesses so usually right. what they say and they say within reason they say when everybody else pulls back 
cuts costs, cuts marketing, cuts people off, mm-hmm. and is just going in their turtle shell to be safe. They said, and they say they say they do say within reason, but they say you should be strategically, you know, maybe going harder on marketing and and hiring some strategic people and trying to grow your business because once you come out of it mm-hmm. better and stronger. In those good times, you're just going to smash everybody else where they're just now coming back up. Now they're higher. Now they're hit, hit marketing hard again, and you're already gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think? I mean, we're obviously within reason because you could just you could just hammer right into a recession and kill yourself. Um, but, yeah, but yeah, I think there are a couple of variables there. One of them is is like your cash conversion cycle and how much money do you actually have in the bank. Right. And, and how does how does cash flow through your business? Right. And what what kind of business are you? Right. Are you a luxury goods? Are you selling Lululemon or are you a plumber? Right. Because it, it's going to depend. Right. Are you by growth? Are you trying to capture more market share and become more of a market leader, and a dominator? Are you trying to offload inventory? Do you have some sort of debt out there with an interest rate obligation that you're trying to get rid of? Like there's so many different variables inside a business of what is the purpose of the growth and what is the need of it and then through this recession you know if you're a a luxury home builder well it's not that you know now's not the time to go out there and and do your thing right because in a recession nobody's going to be going to be building like that and so it it just depends really on on the type of business you have and the service that you have if you if you own a an alcohol distribution facility then maybe you need to pivot uh, into a cheaper model, but alcohol does great during recessions, you know, as funny as that is. So, um, yeah, it, there's so many variables there. It's really hard to answer, but I, I do agree that why everyone else is fearful, you, you could also, from a scalability standpoint, you can get those goods and services a lot cheaper. It's kind of like I was saying with Walmart and those guys that, that wait for these quote unquote downturns to, to kind of j- pounce on the construction world. Um, and, and obviously that's the industry I have the most insight on, but even from a Google ad campaign, right? If, if all of your competitors in town, if you're a plumber, everyone else turns off all their Google ad campaigns, well, it's going to be really easy to get SEO and rank at the top. And you're also not gonna have to pay a whole lot for it. Right. right. And, and so, yeah, you're right. Well then, you know, so the purpose of that is to get more business and then you're going to get more, you know, your total addressable market, you're going to more market share, and then hopefully you can hire their employees, and then your cost of goods are going to go down because, you know, there's not as much demand on on pipe and things like that because there's no more new construction. And so maybe you go out and buy, you know, $100,000 of the raw goods because the commodity right. is so much cheaper, and then you can stock it, right? Well, you, you can't do all of that if you have no money, right? Because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is cash, Right, because yeah. you got to pay your people. So there, there's such a cyclical nature to it that you should you should look into that and you should better understand it and build a strategy around how you want to attack this recession or, or approach these things. Um, but I, I definitely would not take ill advice and just go go crazy. Right, no, absolutely. And I think you know it, it depends on. It doesn't have to be a. It doesn't have to be something where like you know growth is obviously sucks cash, but it doesn't have to be that. Like mm-hmm. all you could you could you could literally just do the same amount of business, and you could hit some really really uh, awesome marketing tools that don't cost you very much just to try to blow business through. Yep. And maybe you try to get yourself you know a year out in in business, and you're covered because you have your cash flow coming in, and it didn't cost you all that much, right? So. Right. I mean, maybe you switch from a very expensive marketing tool that that worked a lot in the in the higher markets, and now you switch to a a more traditional marketing tool that you can push more of, 
And, uh, you know, but it's a lot cheaper. So, you know, I don't know. I think it's just small strategic ways more like that to instead of like, oh, let's go hire 20 people. Well, then you got to have the processes for 20 people. You got to have the cash for 20 people. I mean, you know, I understand why people are laying people off, especially if you're a tech company, because, well, your earnings are just about to get cut, in, you know, half. So you can't. You literally can't. So it makes sense. Right. Well, that it's kind of the IPO process, or you know, like Elon taking Twitter back private. It's like you you lose so much of of the vulnerability of of staring at your stock price every day, and that dictating the way that you run a company. Because on a quarterly by quarterly basis, you know, I've always said you want to make business decisions, not cash flow decisions, not profit based decisions. You want to make the best business decision when you're in a case like he is in a business that large. If you're a small company, you know, and you got five guys, you, you need to just stay alive. Right. And you don't need to be taking on work where the people can't pay for it. That's usually the biggest problem with small mom and pops, especially during recessions, is that you need to be demanding 50 percent up front or making sure that you're covering your basis and getting the, the cash in the door. Um, nice. People may may run out of cash right halfway through the job. And then now it's a, a terrible down and you can do whatever you need to do to get the money. But for a business, a business like him, I think taking it private is a, is a great idea. Um, you know, that I was that was talked about on the all in pod on how Google was, you know, making their decisions around. At the beginning, they were getting beat up because they were building their own server farms and, and these massive facilities, and nobody understood why they were doing it, but they knew in the long run that it would pay off huge dividends. But quarter to quarter, they looked terrible, right? Their, their profit was nowhere near as high as it could have been, but they were making that investment for the long term. Well, they missed out on a lot of investors because of their inability to articulate that, which is exactly yeah. what's happening to Zuckerberg right now as he's spending billions of dollars on this virtual reality He's not able to articulate the vision and show the monetization of that product, but he's getting absolutely slaughtered quarter to quarter because his earnings and his expenditures. Yeah, he's, he's losing $4 million a quarter. Right. Exactly. But he's burning all of that purely in the research and development of VR. Right. right? Correct. But imagine if he can articulate a vision to say, this is how we're going to generate a trillion dollars in value. Right. And, and do you want to bet against that guy? I'm not even sure he's human. So. Right. Yeah, but there's a, a lot of people that said, hey, I didn't sign up for you to go off on this virtual reality thing. I was here for Facebook and y'all's earnings are getting slaughtered. And the other side of that is all the algorithms, right? As he continues to go down and then everyone else has, you know, has a sell call on and it just, just you know, gets, and then the tax loss harvesting. That's the other side of it. You look at the volume of, of sales and buys from the same person where they were just, hey, you know what? We've lost, you know, 40 million bucks. Sell it, buy it right back. Let's claim that loss this year. Yep. So no, nope. hundred percent. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I think I think we may we may chop this up into two. Um, give the, give people it? a little more digestive. I don't know. We're at like hour and forty, something like that. Nice. It's been a while, but um, yeah, it's all good. But uh, anything else you got? Follow my Twitter, Aggie Irving. <laughs> I, I don't tweet a whole lot when I do. There you go. He actually tweets more than I expected. He like, Come on. like you don't you don't talk very much, but when you do talk, you usually have something to say. But you you be talking a lot on Twitter. That's right. I mainly retweet, but depends. Uh, I like to to hate on Jason Kalakinakis from the All In Pod. That's kind of my favorite. He follows me, so and I can talk to him now. So you can't talk to him unless he follows you. Isn't he the the more liberal the host? One? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's cool yeah. though. He's cool. He is. 
but his only claim to fame, like his, you know, his whole thing. And this is what I love to hate on him about is he invested $25,000 in Uber and it turned into like a hundred million dollars. No kidding. Yeah, how, how is that? Yeah. How is that your claim to fame? Like, you haven't, you know, you're a hey, peasant. You've never hey, done anything in life. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. Hey, it is. I'll give you 25 grand. If you want to give me a hundred million, I will. <laughs> Yeah, but that is his claim to fame. And so they, they always make fun of him because the rest of the guys on there, A, they're all billionaires, and then B, they've all done, you know, pretty pretty crazy things. Um, but, yeah, right. Jason, that, that's how he got to where he's at. Amen. So, Don't hate the player, hate the game. Right place, right time. <laughs> that's right. But, all hey, right. all good? I'm out. Out. All Peace. Right. Later. I appreciate you guys coming on here and listening to this. Um, it's been a while, but, uh, you know, we're back. And uh, hopefully we can do this a little bit more. But, man, just been really, really busy. And, uh, you know, it's tough. It's tough, especially with everything we just discussed. You know, we've, we have hired, I think, six guys since we last did a podcast, literally. literally. So, you know, we've been pretty busy. And, and it's taken a toll. But, hey, we're getting it done. Uh, we're doing some business and making some money. So trying to get it done. Hopefully you guys uh, enjoy this episode. I think we're going to cut it in two. But, uh, you know, we'll see you guys next time. They say I'm showing out. They say I should be ashamed. Hey. I don't do it for the clout. Bitch, I do it for the game. Hey. You can walk in any trap, and I bet they know my name. Yo. Frank Matthews of the South put me in the Hall of Fame.